So you can have your Bible open to Hebrews 13, and as you can see on the board behind me, the, the verse I've already written it out for you, it's a very short verse. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Uh, this is a very well-loved verse, a very often quoted verse, and can I say it's an often abused verse with, with the best of intentions, abused, misused, let's put it that way, misused by people who love Jesus and, and believe in the gospel, but really aren't careful about how this verse fits into its context. In fact, would you believe that there are at least seven major interpretations out there about what this verse means? Seven different views. Now, they're not all mutually exclusive, and some of them overlap with each other, but uh, what I've found is at least seven. And I, I want to back up to say that about six or seven years ago, I, I did a study. I was preaching through Hebrews at, uh, at Buena Park, and, and I slowed down when we came to this verse, and we uh, did a hermeneutic study, and then out of this grew an article that I wrote for the South Pacific Journal of Theology. Um, so this is a boiled down uh, version. This is, a, if you call this lesson, honey, I shrunk the article. Uh, it's turned into, uh, into this lesson. So, uh, But now there's two major issues in interpreting this, this verse that every interpreter has to wrestle with. And the first is, what does it mean by the same? What is the sameness of Jesus that's being talked about? And then the, the other question is, what does the author mean by yesterday? today and forever. Now, today is pretty clear, at least for the author, it's his day, but what did he mean by yesterday? And what does he mean by forever? It's maybe not as clear as you might think. So the, the proposition I want to give to you that what the meaning of this verse is in its context, you see it there in the, the end of the introduction, is that Hebrews 13.8 teaches that every generation of Christians should trust Jesus as the faithful and unchanging center of the faith. And, and every, every word there is, is chosen specifically. That what, what we're saying is the sameness is that Jesus is always the center of the Christian faith. Every generation, it never changes. Now quickly, we need to talk about some limits to Jesus' sameness. So your first... Your first blank is about limits. When it says Jesus is the same, it can't mean in every way conceivable Jesus is always the same because he clearly isn't always the same. I mean, just, just think about the fact that he did not always have a human body, right? Before his incarnation, the Son of God did not have a human body. He, was, he had no human self, now, his person is always the same, but he added to himself a human nature in his incarnation. And this is something that even the book of Hebrews discusses. Back in chapter 2, verse 9, um, the author says, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So there you have, in that verse, is a reference to what's implied is Jesus was not always in a humble state. He was in a glorious state. Then he went into a humbled state, and now he's in a glorious state again. Well, that's not the same. Jesus wasn't always the same in that sense, was he? No, so the sameness of Jesus can't include that. 
If you come back to your notes, another thing that the, the limit, one of the limits of Jesus' sameness is, you know, he is no longer subject to suffering and humiliation. In the days of his flesh, he felt pain, he felt hunger, he grew tired, and of course he was killed. He died on a cross. He is not subject to that anymore. He is still in the flesh, but in a glorified flesh. So this is how the book of Hebrews opens. Hebrews chapter 1, in this wonderful, uh, glorious prologue uh, to the letter, where he says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Jesus is in a blessed state. He can no longer be molested uh, by the the fallenness of the world or by fallen hands. So Jesus is not the same in that way, is he? He is never going to suffer again. So whatever the sameness of Jesus is, it doesn't include that. Um, maybe we can think, there's a third thing I have listed in your, no, the third limit. Uh, he no longer requires everything that he did in the days of his earthly ministry. And I don't have any particular passage to go to, but I want you to think about when Jesus was walking the earth with his disciples, Jesus was, as Paul says, under the law. He was obligated to keep the Mosaic law. And his disciples were obligated to keep the Mosaic law. They had to observe Sabbath. They had to observe the Jewish diet. They observed the purity laws. Uh, they observed the calendar beyond Sabbath to the festivals and things like that, the sacrificial law. Jesus was under the law, and they were under the law. But after the cross, they weren't under the law anymore. That's not the same. So I've just listed three. I'm sure there are many more ways we could list out that, all right, whatever Hebrews means by Jesus Christ is the same, it can't mean everything we can think of. There are ways in which his sameness is limited. And I would say that this is why we have to look closely at the context of this verse to say, what is the point of the passage? What is the kind of sameness that the author has in mind? So this, this study is kind of an exercise in hermeneutics. And you say, who, Herman who? Uh, why does Herman have these ticks? Uh, her, hermeneutics is the, the, science, the art and science of Bible interpretation. So, and largely we're going to be focusing on issues of context in our study today. So, uh, these examples of the limits of Jesus' sameness illustrate how we, we have to be thoughtful and careful about what the sameness of Jesus is and what it isn't. So let's start then by talking about the purpose of the book of Hebrews. Uh, and, and this is a, always a great place to start with any interpretive issue is, uh, all right, every, every writing we have, particularly in the New Testament, grows out of a crisis. A almost every writing, there's maybe a few exceptions to that, but Almost every writing in the New Testament grows out of a crisis, particularly the epistles. You, you as a church in Colossae or Thessalonica or whatever, you do not get a letter written to you unless there's a problem, 
right? These are what we call occasional letters. That means there's some occasion, some incident that has triggered the need for this letter to be written. And the purpose of that letter is to address that particular need. Um, as to when the book of Hebrews was written, I, I understand it to be written uh, around the year A.D. 68. So this is after the martyrdom of Paul. Uh, Peter may well have been martyred at this point too. I, I, do, th I do not think that the author is Paul. It, it could be, I'll, I will say it could be, but I don't think it is for a lot of different reasons that I won't go into today. But we do know that whoever the author is, is he's an associate of Paul. Because in chapter 13, verse 23, uh, it says, um, uh, let's back up to verse 22. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly, <laughs> 13 chapters, uh, take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. So there's Timothy. Timothy is part of Paul's apostolic team. Now, some would say, well, that, that's got to be Paul. But no, there were quite a few people in Paul's apostolic team. Um, so I think it's someone who knew Paul, someone who knows Timothy. Um, and by the way, do you note that there in verse 24, it's interesting. He says, those from Italy greet you. So wherever the author is, it sounds like he's not in Italy, but there are Italians around him which hints at that the, this was written to Jews in Rome. Now that's, that's my understanding. That's, I won't die for that viewpoint. But I, I think that the Hebrews who received this letter are Hebrew Christians in Rome. This would be the days of Nero. Nero is officially persecuting Christians in Rome. Persecution is not empire-wide at this point. That doesn't happen until the 90s, 80s and 90s, in the days of when John writes his gospel and the, the revelation. Uh, so what I think is happening is the Jews in, uh, in Rome are under persecution, and, but there's a way out, they think. If they can play up their Jewishness and downplay their Christianness, they might escape because the Jews were not being persecuted at this point. So this uh, brief exhortation um, that he, he says he sent, it's really like a sermon that's been written out. It, it even sounds preachy. And by faith, we thought, by faith, you know, there's that repetition and drama. And it. Um, it, it was brief by the standards of ancient oratory. Often a, a, an orator would go on for two hours. And if you just read the, the Greek text, it takes about an hour and ten minutes uh, to read it out loud. So it's brief by those standards. Um, I, I think that these are Jewish Christians facing persecution. I think they are in Rome. That's what goes in your next blank there. I think they're in Rome. And they are, wherever they are, maybe they're not there, maybe it's someplace else, but they are tempted to revert, to deconvert to Judaism. Because Judaism was a legal religion at that time, and Christianity was viewed at, at, at best as suspect, at worst uh, as a subversive movement. And Nero, in Rome, was martyring Christians, lighting them on fire, and using them as torches for his uh, banquets and the like. So the temptation seems to be that if they can identify themselves 
more as uh, Jews instead of Christians, then they could avoid persecution and perhaps martyrdom. And then maybe, maybe they still want to make some place for Jesus. They can't just ignore Jesus. So uh, we can infer from some of the things that the book of Hebrews says, maybe they were trying to make a place for him that, well, Jesus is an angel. And you remember in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the author goes on, Jesus is way better than angels. Now, he's more than an angel. Um, maybe they, they wanted to, they, he was like a great saint, you know, and, and so the author will go through the hall of, of, of faith, through the hall of history, and say, Abraham walked by faith, and Moses walked by faith, and so on. But the greatest one is Jesus, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the ultimate example, and he's not even on the same plane as they are. So here is a long written sermon with an extended kind of argument and ongoing exhortation on how Jesus is God's final word and he is the Lord of all. He is therefore worthy of worship. He's even worthy of suffering for. This is the, the purpose of Hebrews. It's to, to pull back uh, Hebrew Christians from turning back. And we'll look in a little bit at some uh, verses that speak that way. Well, um, let's, uh, in fact, I, I think there was a, I do want us to go to chapter 10. This is, is a good spot. Uh, chapter 10, verses 32 to 39. Chapter 10, verse 32. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. So it starts off by a reference to there was a previous period of persecution and you endured that well. Now, within, if I'm right, and, and, and I say I'm, I don't mean I'm making this up. This is a, a, a very common viewpoint that these are Hebrews in Rome. If that's right, back in around, oh, I think it's A.D. 49, Emperor Claudius kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. And it didn't matter if they were... Christian Jews or Jewish Jews, or whatever the Jewish Jew is, and non-Christian Jews, they were all booted out. And that's when Priscilla and Aquila get run out of Rome, and they, run, and they happen to run into Paul at Corinth, and that begins a wonderful ministry uh, connection. But, so there were uh, Hebrew Christians who endured that period of suffering, and uh, they lost property, and they, they supported people who were imprisoned. And, but now we're in the 60s, say 15 years later, and uh, they're not weathering it so well. 
And uh, so he says, now think about what the the scriptures say. You know, we need to live by faith. And and if we shrink back, if we abandon faith in God, there's no delighting in that. But he says, look, look, we're not the kind of people who shrink back, are we? So you, you need to persevere and live by faith. And then chapter 11 is that glorious description of people and of old who live by faith. And now you do the same thing and follow after Jesus. Live by faith. So this is, the, uh, this is the context of, the big context of it. Now, I want you to flip open your handout, and number three in your notes uh, is the context of the verse, and we mean this verse, Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So that verse is part of the, uh, a closing set of exhortations. So most of the book of Hebrews is the author arguing with people in a, in a, in a, purposeful way and getting them to think now Jesus is better Jesus is greater he's worthy and then the end of the book is let's let's live for him let's walk with him and so he he gives them instruction about following after Christ's example of suffering and enduring suffering as if it's a fatherly discipline that God gives in chapter 12 and then he encourages them to care for one another and to care for each other's souls that they need to have a pilgrim mindset as they make their way to the heavenly city And then chapter 13 is about them loving the brothers and maintaining purity, living contentedly, following the example of the saints of old. And in the midst of all of those exhortations, that is where chapter 13, verse 8, stands. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, what's interesting is that around verse 8, all of the verses around it are commands. They're all commands. Now, there are some statements with the commands that explain them, but basically the flow of thought is do this, do this, maybe don't do this, do this, and then in the middle of all of that, unconnected to it seemingly, is Jesus Christ is the same. So now this is where we start to work through the context. What is it that's going on? Now, I've given you in, um, in your handout verses 1 through 9, uh, in sort of an indented fashion where uh, what I've done is I've put in bold all of the words that are commands. So you can see how verse 1, let love of the brethren continue. Let, let continue, that's a command. Uh, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Command 2. Command 3 in verse 3, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Uh, verse 4 is, is actually a statement, but it's been understood uh, by all of our translations as a, an implied command. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So there's a, even though grammatically there's not a command there in uh, what we would say in semantically, what's implied in it is that this, this is something you ought to pursue. Verse 5 is the fifth command. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content, sixth command, with what you have. Reason for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Another reason, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. In verse 7, here's another command. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, another command, imitate their faith. 
And then all by itself, without any since or but or for or though or because or therefore, it's Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Next command, verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. Reason, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. So what I've tried to visually demonstrate is that verse 8 has no command in it, no implied command in it, and there's no linking word to it. There's, there's no therefore, no for, no since, or anything like that. There is a connection with what's in front of it and what's behind it, but you have to wrestle to think through what is that connection. And this is a technique that writers of Scripture often use. So the question is, how does verse 8 fit into that context? Notice that it is sandwiched most closely between commands to follow good godly leaders and then a command in verse 9 to avoid false teaching. Notice that? Follow the good leaders, imitate their faith. They've spoken the word of God, but stay away from strange teachings, and they're of a sort of a weird Jewish nature about foods and um, the like. Stay away from that. So whatever verse 8 means, it has some connection to good teaching and bad teaching. Okay, turn over your page uh, to the page 3. I have a list here of seven viewpoints on this verse and a chart, because I like charts. Uh, no longer is this uncharted territory for you. Now, I am not going to uh, work, I'm not going to labor through all seven of these, uh, but I, I will touch on a little. Some of them are very similar. Uh, most, if not all of these, uh, uh, well, not all of them do. Most of these viewpoints do affirm something biblical. Most of them are correct to some degree. The, the, the question is, is this what the author in this verse was trying to say? Now, we're going to come through that chart in a moment. I'll go, go to the, the last page briefly, and we'll uh, focus on what the issues are. All of the interpretations of that verse have to sort out two questions. And I mentioned them at the beginning. The first is, what is the sameness of Jesus in particular? And secondly, what do the time indicators refer to? Particularly when he says, well, let me make some room on the board here. Um, when he says, uh, yesterday, that goes in your blank. When he says, yesterday, what exactly does that mean? And there I've given you five ways it's been understood. Does, it talk, does that talk about Jesus' earthly life? In his earthly life, he was one way, and today he's one way, and forever he's that way. Is that what it is? Or is it, as theologians sometimes say, eternity past, as opposed to eternity future? And I'm going to say something that I don't really like that title. There is no such thing as past and eternity. Eternity is by nature without time. There's so it's an attempt by us time-bound people to make sense of how eternity circles around us. But anyway, no, no points taken off for anybody who ever uses that phrase. Uh, but some say, okay, you know, Jesus, the, the Son of God, is eternally one way. He is that way now, and he'll be that way forever. Uh, or, or maybe yesterday means the Old Testament era, that Jesus, was the Son of God, was active in the Old Testament, and so he will be in the future. Or did it mean... When he was on the, what he, on the cross and what he did on the cross, 
and his high priestly work? Or does it mean the previous generation of Christians? These are now second generation Christians. They're in the 60s, right? So the gospel had come to Rome decades earlier. Um, so these are some of the views. And, and so as we go through that chart, you'll see different views latch on to different of these ideas. Then, then the next question is, what is meant by today? Uh, well, it, does it mean the generation of Hebrews who got that letter in 68 AD, today, that day, as opposed to 2021? Does it mean uh, after Jesus ascended into heaven and this was a whole new day of history? Is it that day? Is it the whole New Testament era? A little bit bigger. Is it our generation? We, whoever reads this later on. Or is it uh, time today as opposed to eternity past and eternity future? And then the related question, uh, what is meant by forever? Forever. Is that uh, what some theologians call eternity future? <clears throat> is it what some pastors call eternity future? Uh, is, it, is it about the eternal state? Is it about all time in the future and on into eternity? Or is it every other generation of Christians after us? So those are not all dissimilar, but they are different, aren't they? So these are a lot of little permutations to play with. And as you can guess, some views take view three of this one and view two of that one and view five of that one or view one, view four, view two, you know, so you end up with combinations of things. Confused? Is this a, uh, but I, I, what I'm hoping you see is that as you sort through a passage and think through differences, there's a lot of little variables that can come into play. And I'll tell you why it's even important that we're doing this other than this is not just an academic exercise because there are believing people who use this verse in illegitimate ways uh, and, and one of them is, uh, is view three right there. If you, you go to your chart and look down at the third one there, that there's the idea that Jesus is the perpetual healer. Jesus healed yesterday, and that by that they mean in the days of his earthly ministry. And he heals today, that is the time when the book was received, and forever he will be the healer. You, you've heard people talk this way? Bible-believing people who love Jesus, who are really fixated on what they think is the supernatural work of the Spirit, and they say, look, if you need to believe that Jesus can heal you because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There are some denominations that have this as their theme verse. Uh, and then there are other views, too, that aren't as, they're not as consequential. So let's take a look at the, the top one there. Number one, Jesus is eternally God. Now, that's true. That is a true idea. Uh, to get that from this verse, though, you need to understand eternity, uh, yesterday meant eternity past, and today means time in general, and forever means eternity future. That is a true point. Uh, and it's a point that the book of Hebrews makes. But it doesn't seem to be what the point is in chapter 13. It doesn't. Um, uh, another viewpoint is the second one down. Jesus is the faithful God of history. Jesus was active yesterday. That was at creation. And in the Old Testament history of Israel... And the book of Hebrews talks about that a little bit. Uh, all things were, you know, he's the, all things were made by him. Let's use a word from Paul in Colossians. The Hebrews will say the same kind of thing, and that Jesus was with them in the wilderness. That's true. And then today means this 
era of salvation in the New Testament, and then forever means future time and all eternity. That, that is a true idea. Amen to that. But I don't think that's what the context is about. Um, so uh, actually, I, I kind of wish I had time to go into these and, and show you verses that show these things are true because they are encouraging, just not the point of chapter 13, verse 8. <laughs> uh, I, I already mentioned Jesus is the perpetual healer of you, and I think this is the one in our modern day that is most troubling. Uh, it is true in Jesus' earthly ministry. He, he touched those who were sick and healed them miraculously, although not all the sick. Uh, and it is true that within the New Testament era and the era of the, the Hebrews that uh, there was uh, attesting miraculous power. But it's not true that all future generations of Christians can just pull down or claim the promises of healing. So, and think about it. In the context, this one actually fits the context of Hebrews the least of all of them. Because there, this wasn't an issue with the, the Hebrew Christians. They weren't doubting or wondering whether or not Jesus was going to heal them or not. They were wondering whether they should own up to Jesus or not. Um, the uh, fourth one, the fourth idea, is that Jesus is the faithful sympathizer. That Jesus will always sympathize with his people. That he did that in his earthly life and sufferings. He knows our weakness because he was one of us. And since his ascension, since he went to heaven, today he's still he's our sympathetic high priest. Hebrews talks about that. And for all time and eternity he will be. Well, amen to that. That's true. He is our faithful sympathizer. That doesn't seem to be what verse 7 is about and verse 9 is about. Um, the next one, Jesus is the ever-efficacious Savior. That is, his saving work works forever. And so to, to get that out of that verse, you have to say, all right, yesterday meant in his earthly ministry and in his sacrifice. What Jesus did then is at work now since he ascended into heaven and it'll work on into time and, and, and forever. And yes, that's true. The book of Hebrews argues that powerfully, that there's no sacrifice like the sacrifice of Christ. There's no need for any more sacrifice because of the sacrifice of Christ. But uh, that's true, and perhaps it's closer to what's in view, but um, even closer is number six. Jesus is the faithful supporter of his people. And this is a shade different from number four. The idea was that yesterday, the previous generation of Christians who taught you the faith, but by the way, I keep talking about that they're second generation Christians. This is implied uh, in chapter two, verse one, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression of disobedience received a just penalty, verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Verse 4, after it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. See that? So Jesus in his earthly ministry spoke the gospel his disciples heard it, and they shared it with us. Second-generation Christians. So some would say, all right, generation one, Jesus was with them. You guys today, generation two, Jesus is with you, and every generation on to come forever. He's the same. He'll be our faithful supporter. Yes, that's true. Amen for that. 
And that's right, and that's close, but I think the point, based on the context, is that last one. That Jesus is the unchanging center of faith. That is, you cannot swap out the center of our faith with something else. He's the center of our faith. He's the center of our hope. And that was true for the first generation of Christians who heard the gospel and they passed it on to you. Jesus was always at the center of what they didn't believe. And you know what? Listen to your teachers. Verse 7. Listen to those who have taught you the word of God. What they are saying is right. Look at the example they've left you. They held on to Jesus. Jesus Christ, who was that way for them, is that way for you now. Today, hold on to him, and he will be the same for every generation of believers to follow. Jesus is the center, must be the center of our faith and our hope. There's no substituting him out, no downgrading him, no switching something else in to make things feel more safe, because there's no safety outside of him. There is no hope outside of him. There's no everlasting reward outside of him. So if you turn over your handout, and there's a few thoughts about this preferred solution. Jesus is the unchanging center of our faith. So Jesus is the object of our faith. He, that is, we're focused on him. He's the center of faith, right in the heart of it. It cannot be switched from one generation to the next and still be Christian faith. The previous generation had an unwavering faith and trust in Jesus, but the people who got this letter, they were feeling real hard this pressure to move Jesus one way or another out of the middle and maybe to put their Jewish heritage in there. Um, and, and you know, their Jewish heritage was impressive. It was very impressive. A couple points down there. I mean, Judaism looked really sturdy to the Hebrew Christians. I mean, you're a Hebrew Christian in Rome. <laughs> uh, you know, Christianity's been around, what, 30 years? Judaism has been around 1,400 years at this point. And it had a magnificent temple that was still standing, although you know what was going to happen in two years. Down would go the temple. Israel had a key role in redemptive history by the design of God. God had raised up Israel and chosen them. Through them, Messiah came. Judaism looked really, really sturdy. It looked safer. But you know, Judaism has not stayed the same. I mean, as I mentioned, just two years later, the temple was gone. The priesthood was gone. Their ability even to offer sacrifices was gone. For many, many centuries, the Hebrew people would not even have uh, real possession of the land. Not until in the last century. And the holidays that are observed within Judaism for the last two millennia have been a shadow of what they were before. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is now a day of reading and praying. There's no sacrifice to be given. Judaism is no longer what it was yesterday. But you know what? Jesus is still the same as he was yesterday. The center of our faith is the same as it was back then. He is the same. He needs to be the focus and the heart 
of everything. He hasn't changed, and so our faith in him must not change. And so the people who received this letter, they needed the encouragement, the shot in the arm, to, to soldier on with Jesus and to bear the shame and the reproach. You know, Jesus got pushed out. He got pushed out and killed. And so the author will say, let us go outside the camp with him and bear his reproach with him. Because, you know, Jesus who suffered and died and, and experienced shame, now he has everlasting glory. This is Hebrews 12, uh, verse, uh, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I want you to hear about the way I read that before we close. Often when we read this verse, if it's read with any drama, it tends to be read this way. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is set down. Right. Uh, but you know what? That's, that's not the idea. The, the, the pain is in the enduring. The despising the shame is a Greek phrase that means he disregarded the shame. They heaped shame on him. They taunted him. They ridiculed him. They degraded him in the worst possible way. And he, he knew they were going to do that. But he looked beyond that to the joy that was set before him in the end. And so we are to fix our eyes on him and do what he did. Yes, we're going to suffer things. Ridicule, it may not, it will most likely be not as severe as what he suffered at the hands of men. But whatever we must suffer, we, we just need to learn to not regard that as so life-dominating. Instead, we look forward to the joy that God has promised us in Jesus. And as we do that, we'll find it so much easier to celebrate how Jesus is the center of it all, no matter what comes. As he was with them in the past, and they stuck with him, so I will too, and for every generation to come. Well, I'm going to close in prayer in just a moment. Are there any uh, comments or questions before we close down our study? Yes, Brian. Pastor, of the seven viewpoints of Hebrews 13, are they consistent with classical hermeneutics, or are they eisegeting? Oh, well... <laughs> There, some of them are eisegeting more than others, particularly the perpetual healer view. is kind of importing an agenda that's not really in Hebrews anywhere. Um, uh, the others, I think, the others tend to latch on to something that Hebrew, the book of Hebrews speaks about, but that they're just not in the immediate context. So it's, I wouldn't say it's so much, for most of them it's not an issue of eisegesis, it's, it's, a, it's an issue of focusing on the immediate, the closest context. They're, they are drawing on context, but sometimes chapters away. So, yeah, not all hermeneutical errors are created equal. Uh, some, are, some are graver than others. And, yeah. No, see, Bible interpretation, I, I hate to say it, and some people don't like to say it is a soft science because, because of the human subjectivity and what we bring in. We try as much as we can to to get ourselves out of the text and, 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 and objectively see what was God saying through this man to these people. And when, as that gets clear, then we re-enter the text and say, now how do how will I apply this to myself? Um, great.
Good question. Well, why don't we have prayer and we'll ask God to bless what we've studied this morning. Lord, we thank you for this uh, a profound verse, a challenging verse, and even though it doesn't command anything of us, it does actually call us, call us to center our lives and hearts and minds around Jesus and no, no one else. Lord, may no one else take center stage in, in our hearts, and it's particularly in our loyalty. May we resist every temptation to, re, to replace Jesus with something less offensive or something that we think is safer, for we are no safer than we are when we are with him. Uh, and so, Lord, we look forward to your faithfulness to us in the days to come and for every generation until Jesus comes again. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.